Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what a grave and uh, solemn and important truth it is that you've called us to put sin to death. What, how important that is, Lord. And I don't take, Lord, these series of messages lightly because they are so important to our Christian life. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in this battle, this fight to the death. Lord, we pray that you'd give us ammunition, give us strategy on how to fight, how to put sin to death. And Lord, especially as we consider the sin of pride, we pray that you'd help us to understand when it's rearing its ugly head in our lives so that we can detect it in order to smite it with your sword. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, folks, this morning we're going to be moving from the general to the particular. We've been talking in general terms about putting sin to death the last three weeks. First week, we talked about the root of sin. Remember that one? We are trying to get underneath all of our sinful actions and attitudes and thoughts and words. What's at the bottom of all of that? And from Romans chapter 1, we discovered that the bottom of all of that is preferring something else to God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We suppress the truth. We exchange worship of the true and living God for his creatures. And so we prefer something other than God. That's at the bottom of sin. And then we looked at what is at stake in putting sin to death. I know that there are some Bible teachers that teach, well, not, nothing really too much is at stake. Maybe you won't have as many rewards in heaven if you don't put sin to death. Or maybe you won't enjoy your spiritual life as much now if you don't put sin to death. But I don't agree. I don't believe those are teaching the truth. I, I think the Bible is very clear. Heaven and hell are at stake in putting sin to death. And I, what I, I don't mean that you can attain salvation by putting sin to death. What I mean is that every true child of God will put sin to death as proof and evidence of their regeneration. And if you lack this evidence, maybe you're not a child of God at all. And so it is very, very important that we are intent upon putting sin to death in our lives. So that's what's at stake your eternal destiny. If you're following the path of sin killing, that leads to eternal life. If you're following the path of indulging your flesh and living according to the flesh, that leads to destruction. And then last week, we started to talk about how to put sin to death. And sometimes we, we can have the idea that the way we do that is just saying no to wherever temptation comes. Just really using strong willpower and just deciding I'm not going to do that. But, you know, that's not really the case. If it was only people that had strong willpower that could put sin to death, then it would only be a fraction of the Christian community that is able to do that. But the Bible teaches that every child of God is responsible to put sin to death in their life. So it's not just those who have this really strong drive and determination to do something. Um, the way we put sin to death is by the, as Thomas Chalmers put it, a famous Scottish preacher, he said it's by the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, something else has got to become more strong in your life than the sin. The promise of God, when you believe it, has got to be greater to you than the promise that sin holds out. 
And as soon as God's promise to you becomes more powerful and you actually believe his promise, the dominion of sin is ended. Since power is broken in your life. So we, we put sin to death with the sword, which is the word of God, the promises of God, faith. Remember, does he who supply the spirit and rot works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course, the answer is by hearing with faith. Now, today we want to go deeper. We talked about the general principles of believing the promises of God to deliver us from the, the power, the bondage of sin. But today we're going to go from the general to the particular, and we're going to talk about the sin of pride. And I chose that one because sin is so prevalent. I think it's probably the most common sin that has been committed on planet Earth today. And I want to start this message off by giving you 39 different ways that sin may manifest itself. And this is not exhaustive. This is just a list I was able to come up with. And I want you to listen very carefully and ask yourself, do I ever see this in my life as a manifestation of pride in me? Okay? Here's the first one. Complaining against or passing judgment on God. A lack of gratitude. Anger. Seeing yourself as better than others. Having an inflated view of your importance, gifts, and abilities. Being focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Goes either way. Talking too much. Talking too much about yourself. Seeking independence or control. Being consumed with what others think about you. Being devastated or angered by criticism. Being unteachable. Being sarcastic, hurtful, degrading, or talking down to others. Having a lack of service in your life. A lack of compassion. Being defensive or blame shifting. A lack of admitting when you're wrong. A lack of asking for forgiveness. A lack of prayer. Resisting authority or being disrespectful. Minimizing your own sin and shortcomings. And then other ones, just the opposite. Maximizing others' sins and shortcomings. Being impatient or irritable with others. Being jealous or envious. Using others. Being deceitful by covering up sins, faults, and mistakes. Using attention-getting tactics. Being unable to say no because you need to be needed. Thirsting for marriage because you're hungry to be adored. Pursuing a title at work because you seek the glory of men. Being overly concerned with appearance, beauty, or clothes. Attempting to appear better than you really are. Comparing yourself to others. Insisting on having things your way. Justifying your sin instead of admitting it. Feeling sorry for yourself. 
being unwilling to ask for help. Not attempting something out of fear of looking bad if you fail. Being unable to rejoice when others succeed. Now there's 39 of them, and I'm sure we could go on and on and on. Did anybody see anything at all remotely in that list that might apply to you? <laughs> Folks, I saw a whole bunch of them. I was convicted on a lot of those. And I thought, my goodness, it is so easy to see pride everywhere when you start looking at a list like that. Pride can come out in our words. And if you've never said these words, have you ever thought these words? That was my idea, but no one's giving me any credit. Or I'll just keep talking since everyone else here is so boring. Or if I needed your help, I would ask for it. I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. Or, I'm the man, look at me, everybody. <laughs> you are telling me what to do? How dare you? Or, I don't think you know who you're dealing with here. <laughs> All of those sound so prideful, don't they? And we probably wouldn't dare say them out loud, but I wonder if we've been thinking any of those thoughts inside. It is ridiculous how much pride there is in the world. And God is calling us to put it to death. So what I want to do this morning is ask four different questions. And then we're going to go and look at some ammunition, some bullets, so we can put in our gun to kill pride. So first of all, the first question is, what is it? What is pride? Let's define our terms. In order to define pride, we have to define faith and unbelief first. Okay, so John 6.35 gives us some help in defining what faith is. I know it's not your classic Hebrews 11.1 Bible passage to define faith, but I do think it gives us a good idea of what real biblical faith is. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now there's parallelism going on in this verse. I don't know if you're seeing it. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So what is believing in Jesus likened to? Coming to Jesus. But it's not just any coming to Jesus. It's coming to him for what? You're coming to him for food or drink, right? You're coming to him for satisfaction for your soul's needs, your innermost needs. So faith in Jesus could be defined as a coming to Jesus to find satisfaction in Him. Well, if that's true, then what is the definition of unbelief? Unbelief is a turning from Jesus to something else for satisfaction. Right? It's just the opposite of what belief is. So true biblical faith is not just having this intellectual agreement that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. There's a lot of people who believe in that in their heads who are not even Christians. They might think they are, but it, it takes more than that to be a Christian. You've got to have an appetite for Jesus in the soul. It's not simply, eternal life is not just given to those who agree that Jesus is the Son of God, but those who drink from Him as the Son of God. Right? Those who partake 
of Him as that which satisfies their deepest longings and needs. The greatest one of all is the need for salvation. And so unbelief is turning away from Jesus to something else to satisfy. I believe that the root of all sin can be traced back to unbelief. And that goes back to our first study, that the root of sin is preferring something else other than God. Right? It's turning away from God to something else to satisfy us. That's unbelief. That's really the definition of unbelief. So then, let's identify what pride is. Pride is one of the sins which cause us to turn away from Jesus to find satisfaction in something else. So we could define pride, define pride like this. It's a turning away from Jesus to find satisfaction in self. Lust is a turning away from Jesus to find satisfaction in sex. Bitterness might be defined as a turning away from Jesus to find satisfaction in revenge. Every sin is fi you're finding satisfaction in one sort or another. Pride is you're turning away from God where you should be finding satisfaction to find it in your own self. And that's why we see it everywhere because we're all self-centered and self-absorbed and selfish, right? To the core. That's, we're born that way. The New American Standard Bible Dictionary defines pride like this. Showing oneself above others. Haughtiness or arrogance. And as we move through the scriptures, sometimes the words haughtiness or haughty will be used in exchange for pride. Sometimes arrogance will be used in exchange for the word pride. Pride is a lifting up of self. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, John tells us how worldliness is comprised. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he now breaks it down into three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So if you're trying to understand what, what it is to be worldly, it's to engage the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It makes up a great category of worldliness. So it's an exaltation of self. Now let's go into our second question. How does God regard pride? How does God look at it? Well, Proverbs 8.13 tells us that he regards it as evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. So here he says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and then he starts breaking that evil down and telling us what evil looks like. It looks like pride and arrogance and the evil way. Or Isaiah chapter 13 verse 11. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And then he goes on to define that evil. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. So evil is defined by God in part as being haughty or being proud. When God looks at pride in us, 
It's not some cute little thing that he kind of, oh, look at that cute little pride running around in their heart. <laughs> no, God says that is evil. That's wicked. Because they've turned away from me to exalt themselves and find satisfaction in who they are. That's the height of evil, God says. Now, the question is, do we regard pride as evil? Perhaps we really don't. I think we're far too easy on pride. Instead of killing it, we just kind of take it a prisoner, give it food and clothes and shelter and let it exist, but just don't want it to get too strong in our life. But God says, run the sword through it. Don't let it survive. Whenever you see it, kill it. So that's the first thing. God regards pride as evil. The second thing you need to know is that God hates pride. Proverbs 6.16 There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. The very first one is haughty eyes. Let me go back and I'll read the rest of that verse. Proverbs 6.16 Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. The one that heads the list of the seven deadly sins that God abominates, he hates these things, is haughty eyes, proud eyes, which see yourself as better than other people. Or Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now let that sink in. If you're proud in heart, the Bible says you're an abomination to the Lord. Abomination means that he detests it. He hates it wherever he finds it. Now the third thing we need to know about how God regards pride is that he's opposed to it. There's two places in the New Testament, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. They say the exact same thing. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I want you to think about that. God is opposed to the proud. If there's anything, I don't want God to be as opposed to me. Think about what it means for him to oppose you. It means he's your opponent. If you're in football, your opponent is the one you're battling against. You're both striving to win the game, and he's your enemy. You're trying to win him. You don't want God to be opposed to you. You don't want God to be your enemy. But God is opposed to the proud. So that's how God regards it. Evil. An abomination. He's opposed to it. Third question is, how is God going to respond to pride? Well, Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. God is going to punish pride. Or, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. How will God punish? He's going to destroy Destruction will come upon the proud. Let's look at a third one. Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant, there's our clue, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There's coming a day of judgment 
That day of judgment is going to be like a furnace, and all of the arrogant and the proud will be cast into that furnace like chaff and burnt up. Of course, I believe this is talking about hell. This is a reference to eternal judgment. So, how will God respond to pride? He will punish it in hell. So we need to be serious about this, don't we? It's a serious matter with the Lord. Now, fourth question is, what does pride boast in? Let's go over to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If you've ever wanted to do a Bible study to find out what God delights in, here's one of the texts you'll want to use. God delights in those things, he says. Now, we're told, well, God says, I don't want you to boast in your wisdom, I don't want you to boast in your might, and I don't want you to boast in your riches. Those are three principal areas that people will tend to boast in today. They show their pride by boasting in might, wisdom, and riches. So let's look at each one of those categories. First of all, boasting in wisdom. And I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 10 and take a look there. In Isaiah chapter 10, God has raised up the Assyrians, and especially the king of Assyria, to bring judgment upon Israel for Israel's ungodliness and wickedness. And so Assyria was raised up by the Lord. Assyria went against Israel and destroyed Israel, took them captive. But I want you to see, well, I'm going to start in verse 5 of Isaiah 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, which was Israel, and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in their streets. And they did that. Now, of course, they did not know that God was using them as an instrument to bring judgment upon Israel. Down in verse 12, it says, So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that is, using Assyria to judge his people in Jerusalem, then God will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So even though the Assyrians were used by God to judge Israel, God says, now I'm going to judge the Assyrians because they did what they did in pride in the pomp of their haughtiness, the arrogance of their heart. And so verse 13, For he has said, By the power of my hand, and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures, and like a mighty man I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or chirped its beak or, or opened its beak or chirped. <laughs> so he's saying, it's like, have you ever seen a nest 
it's been abandoned. There's eggs in there. He says it was so easy. It was easy pickings. We just went in and took everything we wanted from all these nations. We moved the boundaries. We just totally destroyed wherever we wanted and we took all the plunder that they had. And it was because of my wisdom and our understanding that we did this great work. Look at verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? See, God used the Assyrians as his instrument to bring judgment, but they were just an axe. And the axe was boasting over the one who was chopping with it. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields the saw? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So they had everything backwards. They were exalting in their own wisdom. And God bring, bring them down. God brought judgment upon them for that haughtiness and that pride. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see, your own knowledge can puff you up and make you pride, proudful. It can make you arrogant. If you study the Bible hard because you love God and want to know Him, and you want to serve his people so that they can know him, that's a good thing. But if you study the Bible hard because you want to impress people with your knowledge, that's pride, and God will bring you low for it. You have to be very careful about the motive of, of which, why you do the things that you do. And be very careful about start boasting in the wisdom that you think you possess, as though you're some great person. Be very careful of that. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are, were not many wise according to the flesh. You wonder, well, how come? Why did God not choose or call very many wise according to the flesh? Not many mighty, not many noble, but instead God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And then he gives us two reasons why he does it that way in verse 29 and verse 31. Number one, so that no man may boast before God. And verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the, the reason that God has called and chosen very few wise people according to the flesh is because he doesn't want those people boasting in their own wisdom. And exalting themselves. So God chooses the foolish things that don't, they're, they're not wise according to the flesh. And He chooses them and He calls them because they will never boast in themselves because they know they're, that they're not wise in themselves. But instead, they will boast in the Lord. See, God doesn't want us taking credit for what He does. When we boast in ourselves, we are taking satisfaction in ourselves rather than in our Creator, and we've got everything backwards and upside down. And God does not take to that very well. He's not pleased with that. Over in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it says, At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and He said, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So what does God do? Jesus said he hides certain things from the wise and intelligent, 
and he reveals those things to infants. I, I'm convinced for the very same reason. He doesn't want us glorying in ourselves, but he wants us to boast in the Lord. And so this is the way he has designed things. In fact, God hates boasting so much that he's even designed salvation so that no one can boast. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. So it's ridiculous for us to boast in our wisdom. I mean, God looks down on us and he sees these little tiny people with peon-sized brains <laughs> thinking that there's something down there. And, I mean, when you, when you think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 11, you see how ridiculous it is for human beings to boast in their wisdom. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, how deep it is. Oh, the depths. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You know what it means for something to be unfathomable? You can't reach the bottom of it. It's like lowering a weight, a ship, lowering its anchor, and it never gets to the bottom. It just keeps going down and down and down. Paul says, I can never get to the bottom of God's wisdom. It's so deep. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? You think you have? <laughs> think again. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the truth about wisdom. Oh, let us not boast in our wisdom, folks. Secondly, let's not boast in our might. We have a good example of someone who did that and how God dealt with them in the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Are you already thinking of who I'm thinking about? King Nebuchadnezzar. One day, old King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on his roof palace, meditating, thinking about things. And in Daniel 4, verse 30, it says, The king reflected and he said, Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. See, he's lifting up self with pride, taking satisfaction in self. And while the word was in the king's mouth, I don't think Oleg has his verse up there, but I'll read it to you. While that word was still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nail like bird's claws. So it, it sounds to me like he kind of went crazy for seven periods of time. I don't know if that was seven years or seven months or whatever, but for seven periods of time, he was like an animal living out in the fields 
letting his hair grow long, his fingernails grow long, eating grass. God took away, snatched away the sovereignty. How come? Because he was boasting in his might, boasting in self. Notice verse 34. Here we go. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Everything is absolutely reversed, right? Before He's exulting in self, now He's exulting in the true and living God. And then it goes on to say, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Isn't that interesting? As soon as he humbles himself and acknowledges that God should be boasted in, God exalts him. But when he exalts in himself, God abases him. Exactly what we read about in the New Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar is a classic example of those verses. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. It sounds to me like King Nebuchadnezzar got converted because <laughs> he's praising the true and living God. He believes in him now. He's honoring him and worshiping him. It sounds to me like God got through his thick skull by taking the kingdom away. And then when his reason came back and he acknowledged the Most High, he lifts him back up and puts him in place. So he took pleasure in, boast in his might, and God laid him low. What about riches, boasting in riches? Well, go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a long passage, but let's read it. God says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Did you see the point there? Don't forget God when you have become wealthy and affluent. Don't think it was your power which got you this wealth. 
Now, boy, if there's any word we need, folks living in 2017 in the United States of America, it's that passage from Deuteronomy. Folks, we live in the most prosperous and powerful nation on the planet. I mean, we do. We just happen to be one of the 300 million people or so that live in this nation. And we are rich compared to other nations of the world. Don't let your riches make you forget God. Don't be lifted up with pride thinking, well, it was all me. I've heard people say, I worked hard for every dime I got. I worked hard to get what I have today. That's arrogance and pride speaking. Do you know why? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you go about bragging as if you had not received it? So when you say, I worked hard for every dime I got, you're not acknowledging, well, you might have worked, and we acknowledge that you worked for it, but who gave you the strength to work? Who gave you the health to work? Who gave you the mind that is able to think in order to work? Well, God did. So you need to give thanks to Him for whatever wealth that He has granted to you. And wealth is not just an unmixed blessing, folks. You also are going to have to give an account on Judgment Day for the wealth that you possess and how you used it which makes it an awesome stewardship that God has given us here in these United States of America. How are we using the wealth that flows through our hands? So we need to be careful of riches and not boasting in them. We've got our insurances, don't we? We've got medical insurance. We've got homeowner's insurance. We've got car insurance. Some of us have stocks and bonds. You might have savings accounts. We've got all this stuff, and what that does is it tends to make you feel like you really don't need anybody because you've got all this stuff. You become self-sufficient. And you might even feel, I don't even need God. I've got, I've got medical insurance if I get sick. You see how evil pride can be to make you forget God, to leave God? That's what God says here in Deuteronomy. Don't forget me when I have done all this for you. Don't forget me. I'm the one that's given you power to make wealth. Now, let's draw this down to a conclusion. We understand what pride is. It's a turning away from God to find satisfaction in self. We understand how God regards it. It's evil, He hates it, and He's opposed to it. We understand what God will do with the proud. He will punish them. He will destroy them. He will cast them into hell. And finally, we talked about, talked about how pride manifests itself in Wisdom, might, and riches. But now let's see, okay, we know that we have a tendency to be proud, every single one of us. It's our flesh. We inherited that from Father Ab Adam. <laughs> Everyone's been infected with the virus. What do we do about it? It's not simply by saying no to pride. Because if you do that, you're focusing on pride. You need something greater than pride to overcome pride. You need the expulsive power of a new affection. So what do you do? Well, as we talked about last week, you need a promise from God that is better and greater for you than the promise that that pride holds out. And you need to believe, trust in that promise from God. You need to hear the word with faith to see the Spirit supplied and miracles wrought in your midst. Remember, even though the Holy Spirit is a person, let's just for a moment compare him to the power of electricity. That electrical cord is like 
your faith. And the outlet is like the promise of God. And when you take your faith and plug it into God's word, the power of the spirit is manifest to work among you, to be supplied to you. So we need to believe God's word. And what I want to do is give you a list of some promises that I think in the moment of temptation when you're battling with pride will help you. Here's eight different passages. And some of these I'm sure you already know by heart. They're so popular. Luke 18, 14. This is the conclusion to Jesus' parable on the Pharisee and the tax gatherer who went into the, the temple to pray. He says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now you are facing temptation to exalt yourself, let's say. Remember this. Okay, if I go ahead and do that, God's going to humble me. But if I will humble myself right now, God's going to exalt me. Which would I rather have? <laughs> do I want the momentary pleasure of exalting myself, or do I want the eternal pleasure of God exalting me? That will be a deterrent against pride in your life. Bring that promise back to yourself. Bring it back. Quote it. I'm encouraging you to memorize these passages. Think about these passages as like bullets that you put in your gun to kill pride. That's your first bullet. Second one, and we've already read this one, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. You younger one, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you're tempted to be proud, ask yourself, do I want God's grace? Well, yeah, I want God's grace. Well, then I'm going to have to humble myself right now. I can't let myself go and be this awful, wicked, prideful person. Here's another one. Isaiah 66, verse 2. God says, For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Okay, I'm exalting myself, and I go, Oh, whoa, what am I doing? Think about God's word here. God says, to this one I will look. Do you want God to look upon you? That means, do you want him to draw near to you? Do you want him to come to your aid to help you? He does that to the one who's humble, contrite, and the one who trembles at his word. Not to the proud. Not to the arrogant. Here's another promise. Proverbs 11, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Do I want wisdom or do I want dishonor? Take my pick. <laughs> God will either dishonor me or God will grant me wisdom. I need to humble myself before him. How about Psalms 25 verse 9? He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. Ask yourself, do I really want God to teach me his way? Well, he's not going to do it if I'm proud. I have to humble myself for him to teach me his way or I'll never learn his way. And for a true child of God, I know that there's a yearning inside of every one of your hearts to be taught God's way. You want to walk in his way. You've got to be humble though in order for him to do that. Psalm 138, verse 6. 
For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And notice the, the, the contrast there. Here's the lowly, and here's the haughty. It says, he regards the lowly, but he pushes away the haughty. There's this great distance between him and the haughty, but he draws near. He regards the lowly. Do you want God to regard you? Or do you want him to know you from afar? You've got to humble yourself before him. Proverbs 18.12 Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. There's a promise for you. Before, but humility goes before honor. God is going to honor those who humble themselves. That's the same as um, Luke 18, 14, right? Everyone who humbles himself shall be exalted. Humility goes before honor. And then one final passage, Proverbs 22, 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Riches, honor, and life. And of course... Th- First and foremost, the riches that God gives to us are His spiritual riches in Jesus Christ. But He honors those who humble themselves, grants them life. So this week, I am completely convinced that every one of us is going to battle the sin of pride. It lurks in our hearts. It's always down there. It's the flesh. (laughs) It springs out of the flesh. And all of us have this flesh that we have to deal with. So let's arm ourselves this week. Now, don't expect you're going to be perfect when it comes to this battle, but you can gain ground. You can begin to kill the pride that lurks there. Arm yourself with God's word, God's promises. Memorize them. In fact, I think what I'll do, and Debbie had a good suggestion. She said, why don't I just make up a sheet of promises that you can battle each one of these sins that we're going to be talking about. So at the end of our study, I'll give you a sheet. And you have all these promises there, if you want them all in one place. (laughs) And when you're battling these things, go to your sheet and read what God says. And he will give grace to those who humble themselves. Lord, we ask for your grace. We ask for your favor, Lord, that we would take out the sword of your spirit your promises, your word to battle pride that lurks in us and raises its ugly head so often in us, Lord. Lord, we don't want to be proud and haughty and arrogant and boasters. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace we need to to kill this sin. Let us be in earnest about it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.